0: And welcome back to the best podcast. This is number two, episode two. So hopefully you enjoyed the last one, which was with higher, <laughs> higher. Sorry, let me start again. Hello, and welcome to best. <laughs> I've got the giggles
1: now. I know, and you're getting. I love when that happens. It's awesome.
0: Hello and welcome to the best podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you just need to show these little outtakes. <laughs> oh my god, I don't know what set me off
0: now. Oh. I okay, can do this. Wait a minute. I can do this.
1: Say say fast.
2: Fast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> say Kaya. Kaya. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh no, now my scar is running. <laughs> oh dear, okay. Ooh. I think it's because it's late in the evening I've, and I've been sitting at the computer all day. Right, hi and welcome to the BAST podcast. This is episode two. Hopefully you've already checked out episode one with Kaya Hursted Carney, where we talked about her career and some classroom teaching strategies and answered one of the questions that we had from one of the BAST teachers. Now, in episode two, I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Lisa Hopet, who is out there in Nashville. You've got to say Nashville with an accent, right?
1: Nashville.
0: Nashville. Uh, who is also a BAS trainer, but has been teaching for quite some time. And as we will find out, she and I have a couple of common uh, careers in, uh, uh, that we've both followed. But I'm going to now handed over, really, to Lisa to find out more about her background, how she got into singing, how she got into teaching, and, um, and some of more of her story. So, Lisa, welcome.
1: Hi, everybody, and hi, Lynn.
0: Of course, so, you don't have a, an accent from Nashville, do
1: you? Uh, <laughs> I have a really thick southern accent, yes. It's not a Nashville accent, it's an Arkansas accent there's a difference. Arkansas. Or- Arkansas, not Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how
0: people say it sometimes? Sometimes.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: So yeah, what got you into singing in the first place?
1: Um, I grew up with starting with piano. So I remember being about five years old, sitting at the piano, trying to pick out melodies and dissolving into tears if I couldn't figure out the melody and begging for piano lessons and some source of wisdom had told my parents that I couldn't take piano till I was eight. So finally, when I was eight, I got to take piano and I loved it. I fell in love with the instrument, but mostly I think I fell in love with my teacher. Her name was, um, listen to this name, Hattie Mae, Hattie Mae Butterfield. Um, kindest loveliest woman with two grand pianos in her studio and um so i started with piano and was also raised in a church that did music education so from the age of six five i guess we were in choirs and we learned to sing parts and we learned music. And so I was doing that while I was studying to be a pianist and anyone who studies with me now knows that I've lost all my piano skills. So totally. Um, And what I found was being a piano player was very lonely. It's just you, unless you play in a band, but I was going the classical route and what I loved about singing was the community. So I started with choirs and ensembles, sang throughout, middle school and high school. Um, And the only training available in Fort Smith, Arkansas for singing was classical. Um, So you guys, I'm 60 years old. So that was a long time ago. And hopefully there's some contemporary teaching there now, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's not. So came up learning art songs and classical things. Um, But again, the thing I love the most was ensemble. So if there was an opportunity to... Do an opera trio or a classical trio or duet. I much preferred that to solo singing. Um, Fast forward, I went to university. Um, My printer's going to go off, so you're going to hear noise. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Went to university to a school that had an okay music program, not what they were known for, but it was perfect for me because. I could be a medium sized fish in a medium pond, if that makes sense. Um, continue to study classical, but did not get my degree in music. Got it in psychology. Um, my voice teacher, actually in college, was the one who encouraged that. He's like, Do you want to teach at a university level? Do you need a PhD? Right? And I'm like, Nope, not me. Who knows? What do you know at 21? Right. Um, And he said, then minor, minor in music and get a skill in which you can support yourself while you're trying to make it in music. And he had done that himself before becoming an opera singer in Europe. So I got a degree in psychology, um, but I was still doing classical singing, singing classical. Um, My goals I think would have been to be in what we call the B opera houses, but local? local. I don't mean local. I mean, like North America. I d- didn't have a vision of traveling the world to do that. Um, so at that time, that would have been my goal. Um, in the meantime, I realized I needed to make money, and I had not seen the vision for teaching yet, and I was fascinated, always been fascinated by the body. My mom was a biologist. Um, so I went to nursing school as you do. and that's where Lynn and I converge. um, went to nursing school, um, did a specialty in psychiatric nursing, um, but then didn't do that. Um, ended up in neurology, moved to Atlanta where there was actually some great opera things going on, great classical things going on. I worked night shift as a nurse and that means uh, 11 PM to 7 AM. Um, would sleep a little in the day and then go to rehearsals in the late afternoon and evening. And that was my life for about three years and it was awesome. Actually, well,
0: I used to find night duty really, it just didn't suit me at all. all. I know some people who seem to really suit night duty and I, I'm actually quite a a late, um, late bird. But when it came to night duty, I remember, just feeling like worse than jet lag. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't sing very much around that time. So I don't quite know what my voice would have been like, but I'm
1: curious to know how your voice was after doing nights. So I'm gonna give you two reference points for that. So at age 22 to 25, it seemed to be fine. And I just think that's the resiliency of youth Um, I've never had really vocal issues and because I came up singing, I don't know even what the technique, people would have called it a bel canto technique, but I came up not using much chest voice, never using, hey bastards, you're going to get these words, uh, never using maybe even, well, never using excessive medial compression, medial closure, and being very well aware of larynx, even at that stage, I think I did okay. But I did feel like crap. Mm-hmm. Um, I never got enough sleep. Um, and, and you feel super draggy. But then at age 50, when I returned from one of my stints in the UK uh, that you'll hear about and returned to the States, you know, here in the United States, we don't have national health insurance. We needed health insurance. I had to go back to nursing to get health insurance at age 50 and it was like starting again and fortunately at 20 hours a week you can get benefits here and I did night shift because that was only choice and it was terrible Mm -hmm. it was terrible on my body it was terrible on my voice Um, the days I would teach my demonstration sucked (laughs) even worse than it sucks 10 years later. Um, so yeah, not, not recommended. Mm. I do think it was just the resilience, resiliency of youth and not being one of those whose voice was, obviously it was going to be affected, but not terribly.
0: Mm. So how did you then move on to teaching voice? What's that story? <laughs>
1: Oh my God, if you'd asked me if I was gonna teach voice, I would have told you never, ever, ever. Um, So I I had this kind of dual career for a long time, and my nursing career started to morph into more and more teaching and leadership. So unbeknownst to me, I think that prepped me just as far as general teaching, how people learn. We studied those things. I got my master's in nursing, actually, long before I thought about teaching. Um, but I got it in adult education, that emphasis. So I got some of those learning theories and things behind it. Um, but as most people, if you do something decently, well, people oftentimes are like, Oh, well teach me how to do that. You know, and people would say that to me and I'd be like, no, you know, I have no idea. Um, go see, go see my teacher. This was when I lived in Arkansas by then. um, moved out to California and started singing in different choruses and small ensembles and had some people ask me again. And by that time, my kids were also teenagers. Their friends were asking me for voice lessons. So I tried some and it was an abject failure. (laughs) Like I I would get them in there and I'd be like, I don't know. Um, I'd also since left opera behind and classical, Um, my first husband, we didn't have much money when we first got married or even five years into it, and he spent, I swear, probably a month's salary on getting us tickets to the Metropolitan Opera that came to Atlanta every year. He was so proud and so excited to take me, and I slept through every single opera. And it led to big fights as it should, but it also was a little bit of this aha of you're singing it, but yes, sleep through it. What's, there's a mismatch. I kept doing it and I kept doing oratorio work because that's what I was trying to do. But I knew, I knew there was something amiss. So I'd gotten to California and started doing musical theater and then kind of moved into Americana. So the people coming to me were coming for popular music popular singing. And I had no clue. Mm. So I would try, I would be really frustrated and I'd quit. And I think I probably started and quit teaching three times. Mm. Um, And then my son went to a musical theater summer program and he brought home this packet of info about singing. And I started reading through it and I was like, Oh my God, here is, pedagogy that makes sense to me Um, and it happened to be speech level singing from nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine but in it it acknowledged that there were actually vocal folds (laughs) nobody really ever acknowledged that to me and being a nurse I kind of knew they were there (laughs) Um, you know it acknowledged some things that made a little bit of anatomical sense. It started to address the instrument and not just voodoo. Mm. Um, And most of what I had been taught, it has still worked some because I figured out what they were talking about in my own body. But if you just listened to the words and took them at face value, most of that stuff sounded just like voodoo. And I couldn't do that. So Hmm. that's what happened is I read through that. I started, he started voice lessons. I would sit outside his teacher's studio with my ear glued to the wall. And finally she said, come in, you know, and I had some lessons with her. She explained to me what she was doing. I was like, I can do this. Hmm. Uh, And then she sent me on um, to work with Dave Stroud up in San Francisco, which was only a half hour from me and that was the beginning of teaching for me and i did the sls thing but before that i spent hours watching other teachers Mm. how did you
0: do that i mean did you have teachers that allowed you to come in and watch Mm because i I never encountered that really until I got into SLS.
1: Well, and it was through, it was through Dave in the SLS oh, community. okay, so you watched. But what was interesting was because I was in the Bay Area, there were quite a few of us. And even those of us who, um, you know, those of you who don't know, SLS was a very hierarchical organization. And those of us who were peons, um, we still had a community. And sometimes we would watch each other and learn mm-hmm. from each other. Um, which is such value, so much value. Mm. So much so value. what year was that then? That would be 98 to 2000 or so. Mm.
0: So it's a very similar time to when I encountered yes. SLS. Isn't that funny? But I was doing my, starting my journey in Australia. So you were still in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I was starting my degree, my music uh, degree at, whopper in 97 and I'd gone home from Perth uh, sorry back to Perth from the UK and I'd hooked up with a couple of singers there and one of them was telling me about singing for the stars the Seth Riggs book yes yes and I remember going into the mm-hmm. music store and picking it up and going this is really interesting but it's very hyped up a very um sort of American propaganda kind <laughs> Marketing stuff, ah. and um, and it had two CDs with it, uh, and it was like over a hundred dollars to buy the book. This is Australian dollars, and I didn't have any money back then, so I kept putting it back on the shelf. And I must have done that about three times. And I think I'd gone into the shop and I picked it up again. This is the fourth time, and I thought suddenly I thought, well, actually, I suppose these stars don't really need to. Be endorsing anybody as a singing teacher, so they wouldn't do it unless they really believed it had helped them in some way. So maybe it's worth me investing in the book after all, and at the very least, I might have some exercises that I can use. Because I, I was the same as you when I first started. I just all I did was use my exercises that my teacher gave me, but of course that was for my voice and my gender. (laughs) Great. And um, so I, was, I found a lot of it, you know, I was more working around the musicality rather than performance than, than I was around technique when I first started teaching. Anyway, I got the book and I as soon as I started those first few exercises, I went, oh, my God, this is something. This is, this is definitely I can notice what this is doing and it, some of it made sense, some of it was a bit still mysterious to me. And I thought I need to pursue this. So I found out that there was a teacher in Sydney and during my uh, holidays between first year and second year, I went over to Sydney uh, and that would have been between 97 and 98. Exactly. Yeah. And he said, well, the organisation is starting to do a teacher training program. Why don't you? You know, If you're interested in teaching, then you might be interested in Finding out more, and here's the contact details. And of course, that was with Dave Stroud. (laughs) And uh, so, yes, I kind of started that journey then, but um, I didn't have access to anybody that I could learn from on a regular basis. Right. So I'm very envious that you had that. And it ended up that um, after I finished uni, because oh, that was the other thing was I was in the middle of a degree, and I thought I can't manage to take on anything extra at the moment and so I just kept in contact with um with SLS or you know with Dave and found out how things were progressing and then eventually when I found myself in the States then I caught up with it and by that stage I think it had just started about 2000
1: yes yes 99 or 2000 I started in
0: 2001 with my certification so it's not really that dissimilar really no, no, the stories are really similar. And also, like you, I found myself teaching when I was nursing. And how was that? I mean, Well, I enjoyed it and I never yeah. thought that I would because actually my family are all teachers. Mm. My dad was a senior lecturer. His brother was a lecturer. His brother's um, wife was a headmistress. In fact, my cousins are both teachers. My, um, my great aunt's both my great aunts were teachers and so it was <laughs> totally in the hand. Right. And i was never going to teach
1: <laughs> and no i mean
0: no you don't want to do what they did no exactly but it somehow through osmosis sort of seeped in and i eventually found myself act- actually doing more teaching kind of roles in nursing and enjoying it mhm mhm so how do you think nursing has
1: informed you as a as a teacher so to know the body I think it's been super helpful. And that was the thing missing from the teaching that I received um, as a young adult and even as a teenager is all, my t- all of my teachers were, we only talked about the resultant sound. Um, the only musculature or anything like that we ever talked about <laughs> was either squeezing my butt cheeks together, right? Um, or I love the one lay on the floor with the books on your belly and make the books rise and fall. Um, so, you know, a little bit of abdominal muscles, um,
0: the diaphragm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The breathing Mm -hmm. muscles. We never talked about Mm -hmm. intrinsic muscles. We overt, we, not overtly, we covertly or what's the word I want? Non-directly talked about extrinsic muscles. Mm -hmm. Um, but we never addressed that directly Mm. you know what was that Mm -hmm. what was going on so i think knowing the body um when you're a a ward nurse or a floor nurse which i was for a long time you also meet millions of different people from every walk of life every way of thinking you know i think that was really helpful Mm. It got me out of my little, you know, white, upper-middle-class U.S. bubble. And and let me see many more things. Um, I think that's really helpful. Mm. Um, I was not raised around a lot of artistic people. My mm. mom was a mathematics teacher. Uh, and a biology teacher before that, my dad was a businessman, um, that I studied piano and that my brother studied piano a little bit. That was not the norm in my family. Um, you know, so in nursing, I met all sorts of people and I met crazy artists and singers and musicians. I think that was helpful. Mm. Um, the they,
0: they, the, um, my catchphrase used to always be when anything ever went wrong or I was feeling stressed about something, this is after I sort of focused more on the teaching, I'd always say to myself, is anyone going to die? No. Okay, we're good. <laughs> yes. And I, I feel like that's what's kind of helped me understand because there are those extremes in, in nursing is that people do die and they get very sick and, and you know, sometimes uh, have, Sustain injuries that are life changing, and for the most part, in what I do as a singing teacher, I'm not going to be doing anything that
1: serious. No, I think that's a wonderful perspective. However, I mean, it does bring up um, dealing with people who are vocally injured uh, or vocally challenged who are already artists or already professional speech or speakers. Um, and for them, those injuries or diseases, I mean sometimes it's not even an injury, mm. are as catastrophic, you know, as somebody, sorry gays, but somebody who's got like a bone sticking at their leg. Um, yeah. So so, yes, day in and day out, the person sitting in front of you is likely in a, in a teaching environment or in your class is li- not likely to die, and that's a good thing. You can take a deep breath and not have to work with adrenaline so much. Yes.
0: But on the other hand, if you have a, a, a singer who is dealing with an illness or an injury that's impacting on their voice, then, I mean, I've found nursing very helpful because I've become – I take a much more clinical approach to dealing with them and I don't get involved in the emotional side so much. And we talk about in the course the difference between sympathy and empathy, and I certainly learned how to empathise as opposed to sympathise because of nursing.
1: Yes, and, and, and that is super important because you, I think we have to maintain that degree of objectivity um, because they've already got all the emotions they need for that and more. Mm. You know, we don't need to feed into that. We need to be the voice of reason, somebody for them to reflect off of, you know, to say, does this make sense to you? You know, the doctor told me this, that, but not not get so enmeshed and involved that we lose perspective as well.
0: So how do you, from a strategic point of view, or when you're discussing these things, how do you ensure that you maintain that slight distance and don't get involved. Is there a specific strategy that you take?
1: You know, if it's if it's somebody I've been with a long time or they've been working with me a long time and their injury or illness occurred on my watch, it's a little easier to slip and and get into the drama. Um, and so I will say to them, especially I mean, I don't know if this is true for, for others, but after years, oftentimes your clients may also become your friends Mm. and to toggle back and forth between those two roles. And so I will verbalize out loud, Hey, in this realm, I have to enter the role, you know, as the expert, as the teacher, um, and not as your friend. Mm. And I think to clarify that is a really important thing. And then they know what they're getting from you. And I think that's, they know that that's what they need Mm. actually. Um, The other thing is to very quickly say, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with you until someone takes a look. I can't tell you, I can just tell you that things aren't working right. Mm. You know, and I don't play the guessing game, even though probably 70% of the time I'm right. Mm. I'm not going to tell them that because different injuries, I mean, different things wrong can sound the same. Mm. So I try not to play that game. Oh, you've got nodes. Uh, Who am I to say? I haven't seen it. So I don't know. You know, there's a there's actually an email in my inbox right now um, from a guy who's he's not a singer, but he's a professional broadcaster and speaker, um, and also a stand-up comedian. So his voice is his life, and there's something wrong with it. And he went to see a um, a regular ear, nose, and throat doctor, not somebody who um, specialized in voice. And this person really didn't have the equipment that they needed and was told one thing. And then I referred him to an honest to goodness laryngologist who had the correct equipment and things. He told him something much more serious and dire. And he's just like losing his shit over this. And I understand that. I understand that. And again, in the United States, because we don't have national health care, his health care insurance will not pay for these interventions that the specialist said need to be done. It's going to have to come out of his pocket. So my first reaction is to wait two days. That sounds, I don't know, that may sound kind of mean, but it's to wait two days, let him settle, let him live with the, the, um, the two stories that have been told to him by the two doctors because my guess is if I jumped in immediately, he's going to want to say, Oh, I'm sure the second doctor's wrong. I'm sure the doctor who's the specialist is wrong because that's what he wants to believe. Mm. But if I give him some space and some time and I, and I know him a little bit, I think he'll come down on the other side and we'll have a much easier conversation. Mm. So I I guess giving people space. Mm -hmm. Space to live with it for a little while is a is a strategy as well. Mm.
0: Yes, and I I like the idea too of that you don't know everything, so it's it's you're there as a support. You're not necessarily there. I think some teachers get you know feel like this pressure that they need to know everything, and you know it's like, that's not our role. It's not our role to diagnose or to even treat somebody more and i think that's a similarity with nursing as well you know we weren't there to diagnose or we were there to carry out treatments or support you know in in, through nursing strategies and processes whatever else was going on and to help that person towards healing and I'd, i'd probably take teaching in a similar way
1: you know that makes total sense. I'd never thought about that that relationship that way. Of yeah, we don't make the diagnosis; we do assessment, which is what we do and what what we teach in BAST. You know, we do follow up, we do reassessment, we implement the plan, blah blah blah. All the education liaise
0: course. liaise
1: with you know the other. That's right, and and yes, precisely. And I think I too, if if that. You
0: take, yeah, if you take the pressure off needing to know everything it makes it a lot easier it's not I don't feel like it's your job right it's not and I think it's your 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 responsibility to understand the broad spectrum of what possibilities so that you can support appropriately but not because you're going to be the one giving the diagnosis or making you know especially for medical things yes absolutely So, what what have your biggest challenges been as a as a teacher? What were the things that kind of made you stop and Uh, pause for thought?
1: Oh my god! So, (laughs) they may be fall, but some a couple of the things have stayed the same. You know, the first one was just I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know enough to teach. I can't take those first students. I don't know everything. Um, That was the first big barrier, and I think without the support of other more experienced teachers behind me, I may have not taken that leap Mm. um, to get the first three students. You know, one of the things, I don't know who said it. I don't know if it was Seth or Dave or who, who said, you know, if you're not hurting anybody, if they leave the lesson, no worse and only 5% better You've done more than a lot of teachers have done, Mm. and to get started, I needed to hear that. Mm. Um, I was just like, "No!" And I started with three students for free, and I recruited them from a choir I was singing in. And within like four or six weeks, they all said they benefited. So that was a big challenge. Was just starting. As the business grew. <laughs> I'd never had my own business. I'd always worked for somebody. So, the organizational and the business management skills I mean, I was just a mess. I still am a mess. I won't show you my desk, okay? And that's a challenge till today. Um, I don't care about those things very much, <laughs> even though they're essential. Mm. Um, people still to this day, you know, say, so when are you going to bill me? <laughs> okay. But just counter to everything we teach in bass, where people pay up front, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden I'll find somebody that I just never even discussed billing with. I've been teaching them and they have been paid for two months. Not that they won't, but you know, it does help if you have the discussion and set the policy. Um, that that is a challenge. Um, So, well, question
0: about that because does that worry you? Um, I mean, do you, do you wish that you were more organized in that way or is it something that you feel that's you and you're living with it?
1: I used to worry about it because people told me that I should Mm. worry about it. You know, I don't worry about it anymore. I really don't. I've never gotten into financial trouble the way I do it and, And I make it sound worse than it is. 90% of my students, we have a structure. I have one off seven and 11 session packages, you know, it's all paid at the first lesson. But there's just these holes, you know, people wander through where I have brain farts, they have brain farts and, you know, months later they're like, it tends to be my Scott clients because if I see people eye to eye, I tend to be better about
2: that. Mm
1: You know, and they just fall through. And so I've gotten where we just laugh. And, you know, I think out of 18, 20 years of teaching, I've only had one person not pay. So I think I've done okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm also told I should be more organized. Um,
0: well, I had a really, um, that's kind of, I don't know if I was, yeah, I was not taking responsibility for a long time and i remember getting into a situation where my student actually was following up on payments and realized that he hadn't been paying me for nearly 6 months oh cuz it was a direct debit yes or standing order and and i hadn't been and i hadn't checked my books and and it was only because he was looking at his that it came up I would have eventually have caught up with it, but it would have been probably at the end of the financial year. Yes. And I felt so terrible because he owed me thousands of dollars, uh, pounds, I should say. And and I felt really, really bad about that because it was partly, I knew it was also my responsibility. If I'd kept on top of that, he wouldn't have been in this situation where he owed me this large amount of money. And he was, you know, he was totally honest and upfront about it and uh, wanted to pay, et cetera. And I, what I did in the end was I gave him a, um, I said, don't, you know, you don't have to pay it all at once, obviously, just let's figure out a payment plan that suits you because this is my fault as much as, you know. Mm-hmm. But yes, that, that was a little bit of a moment where I went, actually, this being a little bit laissez-faire and not taking responsibility, it's not, a, it's not professional, it's not a good thing and it can actually land, inadvertently land the student in a very awkward position. Right. Because obviously coming up with that sort of money...
1: Yes, yes.
0: ..all at once yes. is quite different to gradually paying it over a period of time. Right. Yeah. Um. So what... We're interested, I'm interested a little bit about, because you've worked in a few places now teaching, you've worked in the States, obviously, in different parts of the States, you've also worked over here in the UK, you were uh, living in Liverpool for a while, weren't you, and mm-hmm. working at Lipper, so tell me a little bit about the experience of taking teaching into a, an academic setting in the classroom.
1: yeah. So I'd started out just teaching um, out of a dedicated room in my house in San Jose, California. And then we moved to the, uh, we moved to the Island man and that lasted about six months. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going nuts. I'm going crazy. No offense to any of you from the Island man. It was just, I needed a bigger place. Um, and I happened to get a job teaching at LIPA, which just was amazing. Um, but I don't think I really understood what that meant. <laughs> it meant back to back half-hour lessons, bang 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 bang, and that I was not in charge of my schedule. Mm. Um, I did not set my breaks right; it, it was set by the scheduler. Um, you know, there, I couldn't refuse a student. You know, anything like that. So it was all out of my hands. I love that actually because the things I found difficult and when I was in San Jose was the beginning of my teaching was recruiting and the business bits and stuff. And I didn't have to worry about that stuff. Mm. You know, the clients were there for me. I love that. I loved the degree of talent, the level of talent that I got to work with. Um, not that every student was motivated by any means, not that every student practiced by any means, most m- maybe didn't. <laughs> um, but the basic level of talent with which we got to deal was quite, quite high and quite good. Mm. Um, we also, um, I was, that was uh, at that time, we can go into this. Individuals, if they ever want to know, at that time Lipa was a speech level singing school, whatever that means. Um, and so, with SLS, um, we also began to develop a curriculum to teach the any of the Lipa students who wanted to be teachers. Um, so I now see, well, duh, that was the beginning of teaching teachers, although I didn't see that at the time. Um, I would never have imagined I would have been doing that, Mm. you know, curriculum development, blah, blah, blah. Hello. Um, so I loved it. I loved being overseas. I loved being in a different culture. I remember being interviewed, um, by Ian and, and another teacher, um, when I went over to interview and not understanding anything they said, (laughs) oh
0: ian davidson one of the other trainers yeah
1: (laughs) yes who is a scouser yeah yes and you know i you should ask ian sometime if 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 you're not in liverpool and not hearing him ever do his scouse if you're only meeting him in london he's probably not going into his scouse accent but when he goes there full on it's awesome awesome. and but i'm like i have no idea what you said um (laughs) And so I just was trying to be polite and nodded and smiled and didn't know. Mm. Right. Um, I didn't know anything about school politics. Mm. So our office politics. I mean, I knew about them in the hospital setting because I'd been a nurse manager. So yeah. I didn't know, but I didn't know what to expect. And um, there were only three women total in the office that included another teacher. And at the time she was... Um, the administrator I think she now teaches there as well and everyone else was guys um as a nurse and when I've been a nursing administrator most of us were women Mm -hmm. so that was a very different bit too Mm -hmm. being responsible for formal evaluations Mm -hmm. that was a new game as well Mm -hmm. um And I didn't know that was part of the job. (laughs) I was like, oh, I just get to teach. I was like, really? I have to fill out forms and assessments and audition people and hear their senior recitals and blah, blah, blah. You know, and it was all very cool, but unexpected Mm because I I didn't know to ask the questions, I guess. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. To have that experience of being overseas, to do something way outside what I was familiar with. Such a gift. And it's where I get to meet so many amazing, cool other teachers all over the UK. Mm.
0: Now that you're back in Nashville, I'm interested to know whether you have noticed any difference in the singers that you work with compared to some of the other places that you've worked in.
1: You know, I have. When um, I moved back from the UK, I went to a smaller town in North Carolina called Asheville. It's a pretty big music place. But most of my clients were hobbyists. Um, and it just became clear to me that I wanted to up, up my game with teaching and teach people. Not, not that they couldn't be hobbyists, but that just were more serious, that might practice, <laughs> actually, uh, and it had some clearer goals. And so I felt like I needed to choose a music city in the US. And it seemed to me Nashville. Was the place that fit me the best. It was a place that, and and again, this is looking at it as me as an individual teacher. You know, who am I? Well, I was in my 50s. What city respects age versus, oh my God, she's over 35, she's all washed up? You know, so Nashville is a place that actually does respect age. Um, What's a place that has enough going on? What's a place that has genres that I'm comfortable with? So, you know, I could go to Atlanta. They respect age. They're, you know, there's not a lot of cultural differences between two southern cities, maybe. But the main industry there is hip-hop and rap. That's not an area that, that's an area I would refer clients out to. I would get their technique straight and then send them to a style coach. So I wanted to be in a place where I could have a client for technique and style or not. And I still refer people out for style a fair amount. So I chose here, um, and again, that means I had to start a business again. So my first clients tended to be hobbyists and I thought, oh, I've made, I made a bad decision. But after staying here, being here for a while, just building my reputation, I do get clients who have clear goals, or clear goals about what they wanna do. So I have people who are rising up and trying to make it in the industry, that's, That can be really difficult because sometimes you have to have the real difficult conversations about i'm not sure this is going to work you know um, I have an interesting number of a um, rather large number of clients in their forties and fifties um, who want to keep their careers going or revive their careers and it's a very interesting thing about Americana and country music, Um, is that it's okay to be older and still sing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Very okay, actually. And then I have a lot of touring musicians who are based in Nashville, not here very often, across all genres. Um, A lot of rock and roll, um, some pop. I probably only have three, honest to goodness, country, country clients out of all of them. Uh, And then there's the kids, the kids who come to Nashville with their guitar on their back, you know, and want to get a start. Um, And for them, I mean, I think the technique and and all those things is great. But another really important part, I think, of being a good teacher is being able to connect people. You know, they don't know. They don't know what managers even do. Mm -hmm. Right. So to be able to connect them to a workshop or actually a manager who's willing to talk to them or a songwriting coach. Um, That's all really fun. And it brings me back to the thing I love the most about singing and now teaching perhaps is the community and the connection.
0: So Um, what kind of people do you have in your referral network?
1: So I have a style coach and she actually, I actually own a building here in Nashville. It's got four teaching rooms in it. People rent space for me. She's actually rent space for me. She's um, somewhere between 25 and 30. She is awesome at indie pop rock style. And she's took the bass class. Um, And she's also just, a good natural teacher. There's some people who that's just easy for. And she actually did a fair amount of teaching in undergrad and grad school. So I refer people all the time to her for those styles. Um, I actually, you know, have a, a, I don't know what else to call it. Screaming coach. Um, that I refer people to as well. So I've got that. I've got, she would probably call herself a songwriting coach. Um, but the reason I refer people to her is what she's really good is helping people reflect back to figure out what it is they want to say and their lyrics. And she understands music. There's quite a few writers who are great lyricists. They don't really understand music and how to put it together. Um, I have a producer that's really great producer and engineer. who's really great with beginners and people who, Never really been through that process. And his rates are such that you don't have to spend a fortune to go make your first EP or your demo. But they're super high quality. And then I have a producer and engineer team who, if you're ready to really get your album out there, and it's, you know, first class, first class musicians. So I've got them. Um, I've got healthcare people. So I have a laryngeal massage person. Um, I have people who do massage, different types of body works. We're so fortunate to have a clinic literally right next to my building. And we set up a relationship with a woman there who's wonderful at working with bodies. Um, A laryngologist. Well, actually, he's not a certified laryngologist. But a guy who mostly does voice. Okay. His experience is mostly in voice and he himself is a singer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he gets it. Um, he's there. Um, even things like bookkeepers, you know, as some of these people start to get their lives get more complicated as their bands start to take off and stuff, they don't know what to do and how to manage money and stuff. Even a bank. Okay, a local bank that um, does classes for small businesses that would be perfectly appropriate for a musician um, Is starting to get income and has no idea, again, about what to do with that.
2: Mm.
1: So pretty extensive. Um, and other teachers, other teachers. I used to think it was a ref- bad reflection on me if somebody wasn't a good match. From me and I've since learned no, yeah, well, who am I? That's just super arrogant that I think I should be able to serve everybody, really. Um, so, getting to know other teachers again, having a studio where again, I'm just gonna brag about Bass, but um, has everybody who teaches? Yeah, so I think everybody who teaches in that rents space for me is taken Bass. And so I kind of know where they are and I know where their head's at. And I love referring people away from me to them if that's the right thing. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's been the great thing for myself as well. Because I have now, because I haven't been teaching as much when I get inquiries, I've always got someone I can refer students on to. Yes. And different levels as well. You know, some people are not ready for me. But, they, but I want to make sure they're still getting good teaching. So someone who's just done the BAST course or a few years in. Right. Fit for them.
1: Right. Exactly, exactly. One of my favorite teachers here in town to refer to, because I don't teach many children. Actually, I don't teach any children anymore. Occasionally, you know, 16 on up. Um, there's a girl here, a woman here who took BAST, who has always specialized in the 5 to 12-year-olds. Mm. that's what she loves she teaches them so much better than I ever would Mm
2: -hmm.
1: even if they're professionals I mean she's got it she knows how their brains work Mm -hmm. you know and yeah I don't do well there yeah I'm not good with kids Um,
0: I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the vocology course that you did a couple of years ago yeah Why why did you decide to do it? What's it called again? It's the...
1: Summer of Ecology Institute. That's right. And Ingo Tietze. Ingo Tietze teaches it. He He does it through... He used to do it through the University of Iowa, but it's now accredited through the University of Utah. Hmm. So it's taught there in Salt Lake City. It's a university master's level course. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: What are the units that you cover?
1: So... I only took, there's three sections of it. I'm looking for my book. Ah, So the first section is where you cover principles of vocal production, Dr. Tietze's book. Then there's two other sections um, that are more applied. So you're actually in a lab and doing filtering and all these different things. I don't even know what they do in there. I never took those sections. I only Mm -hmm. took the first one. Um, and we literally do one full chapter a day um, of that book and cover it with Dr. T say teaching it. Um, it's a three hour lecture, um, And then study groups that mm-hmm. you just put together on your own at the end of the week. You take a test from um, four or five modules, and then you keep going till the end, and then there's a comprehensive final. I was absolutely terrified. There's a lot of mathematics. There's physics. There's, I took it at age 50 something. The last time I had a mathematics class was statistics when I was 35. <laughs> so, and the physics, and I took physics right around that time too. But you know, those things are 20 years old. Absolutely terrified. Um, saving grace was that everyone's absolutely terrified. Again, I'm going to bring up this thing of community because I think it's also such an important aspect of bass. You form a really tight community. You help each other. Every study group, we just kind of formed. It just happened, but it seemed like in every group, there was somebody who really got the anatomy and physiology. So that was me. I understood how the voice worked, but there was like a brand new um, speech pathologist who wanted to get her PhD in my group. Oh, so she was like mad at math and knew more about the physics. Um, you know, there was always the questioner. So you formed this great community. I took it because I felt like I needed to understand more about the acoustics of the voice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the anatomy and physiology, I didn't understand more. We actually dissected an elk larynx. Mm. I mean, I got to put my fingers on CTs and TAs and cartilages, and we actually took the vocal folds and excised them out of the larynx, put weights on them to see how far they would stretch, took the weights off to see how far they would rebound. You know, um, I remember the arytenoid cartilages and an elk are Mm gymongous. And I didn't know that, right? But they have to make that bugle sound
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that elk make. If you've never listened to one, you should go on youtube and check that out they have to make this exceedingly high pitch and i assume that's why their retinoids are so giant i was like what is that i couldn't figure out what that cartilage was mm. anyway sorry such a geek um but i didn't i got exposed to the acoustic side of things those the f word formants and all that about i don't know 15 12 15 years ago and it was a rough ride the first time I got exposed to that. I remember walking out of some class with John Henney, and who's now like gets it way better than I ever will. Um, and we were like, okay, we just both have to quit. Clearly, we don't understand and we're never going to understand. So we should just go home and do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like 12 years later, I still felt that way. Even though I'd been exposed to the content a few times. So that's why I took it. Mm. Um, I think there's some important questions that brings up though for me like how has that actually helped in my teaching
0: Mm. well that was going to be one of my questions
1: yeah I listen differently that's how it's helped I listen differently I listen for subtle changes in tone that reflect changes in the resonator that if you trace that line of thought thought back, that reflect formant changes, harmonic changes. Um, I think that when we first started getting exposed to that and maybe even up till just a year or two, maybe three years ago that we were, some of us were so excited about this new knowledge that we took it too far. As far as in the delivery of our lessons mm. and um, that there, I was never one who did it just because I think I never got comfortable enough with it, but people who really understood it where they could just roll stuff off their, you know, those things would roll off their tongues so where I still have to really think about it that they were using those concepts verbally a lot with their clients. And I'm not sure that's appropriate.
2: Mm.
1: I'm not sure Our clients get that, and I'm not sure they need to get it. Um, I think there's a few clients maybe it's helpful for. I don't know. Mm. So I have a bias. I clearly have a bias and prejudice Mm. um, towards that. Um, Would I do it again? Absolutely. Absolutely. It did raise my teaching up. Mm.
0: Um, I think any education that we take, packs us up another notch, even if it's just in confidence. So even if you don't use all of that knowledge, like, for instance, my master's, I don't use all of that knowledge at all uh, because a lot of it was um, based around dance and, and instruments, you know, orchestral instruments. But mm-hmm. it, it just gave me this extra depth or of understanding of the art and the implication of health and uh, well-being from you know what we do with our bodies on a day-to-day basis in our art. And whilst I don't use that information, may never use it, I feel a little bit more confident.
1: hmm No, I get that. And I think, I think as teachers it's really important we keep super-focused the individual in front of us or the or the group the group in front of us, it's not about sharing everything you know. that's just you know um, that just usually is not appropriate mm. you know, but i I get, it. and I think one of the things that you've brought to me um is your whole knowledge of how humans learn and learning theory um you know you putting together that best course. And again, one of my favorite things to say to people is this is the most awesome course in the world. And I can say that cause I didn't create it. Okay. <laughs> but the person who did, you should meet her. Um, and you did. And I think perhaps one of the things we really need to pay attention to, and maybe all of us study more is how humans learn. Mm. How do we, this person standing in front of us has come to us to get something, something new, some new coordination, some new information, some new concept. How do we reach them?
0: That's
1: mm. well, a fascinating area.
0: I mean, I, all I did was bring to you stuff that I'd read about or been taught, but, and that's constantly evolving. But I feel like it's one of those things that you can have all this knowledge in, in your head all this experience under your belt, but if you don't know how to communicate it, how can you teach? And I think it's really integral, you know, to the teaching process that there's many teachers out there who I think have got amazing credentials, but not as teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mm -hmm. And, and they, they don't really... Think about what it's like for somebody who's never, ever done that before or have never really thought about the process of how they came to learn a process. Um, and so they're kind of talking at that level when there's student's somewhere down here. And I, right. and I think it's a real shame, you know, if you haven't learned how to communicate that stuff, that wonderful experience and knowledge that you already have under your belt. Uh, but yeah, it's always changing, and I love the fact. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. Um, I offer—I give one of the sections is to offer the the guest the opportunity to ask me a question,
1: <laughs> In I, which I love.
0: No one asks me anything too awkward, <laughs> but uh, okay. yeah. So, do you have a question for me?
1: I do. I want to know what you do to keep your interest in teaching or training teachers or whatever it is, Mm. how you keep your interest in your passions alive? What do you do that feeds you?
0: Well, I have to say I have a very um, short attention span (laughs) and I get bored really easily. So I had to make sure that I figured out how to keep myself motivated because otherwise I wouldn't have kept teaching. Uh, if I had to do the same thing day in, day out, then I wouldn't be able to continue for a great length of time. So the way that I do that is by engaging in learning, whether it's doing a course or a workshop, uh, whether it's taking something more professional kind of course or whether it's just an interest workshop. So I'm doing a workshop in two weeks' time on this uh, access consciousness uh, bars, it's called. It's an American process where people, I haven't done the course yet, but basically you work around the certain points of the head, which I guess is an energy thing, and it helps to release tension, stress, emotions, that sort of thing. So one of my goals really is to, because I really think that students there's so much that gets in the way of their learning, you know, the limiting beliefs and same, you know, with performers, there are so many amazing performers out there whose limiting beliefs just prevent them from getting out there and showing the world their wonderfulness. And I feel like uh, my, my current goal at the moment is to just figure out how to get rid of these limiting beliefs as quickly as possible. And so I've started exploring this, which is outside of the realms of of just normal pedagogy and into something a little bit more ethereal or, you know, new agey maybe even. So that's how I keep myself motivated is that I, I'm i constantly in the learning process, whether it's listening to a new book. Latest book I've been reading uh, is called The Bad Food Bible by Aaron Um. Aaron Carroll, mm-hmm. who is a paediatrician and a researcher who's discovered, who, not discovered, who's done a whole lot of reading on all the studies that have been done in food and nutrition for the last maybe 30, 40, 50 years. And he's busting a lot of myths here, by the way. Nice. Really interesting. So reading, and I, and I, I love the fact that now you can have your books on. Um, on a like an audio book yes so I can listen when I'm driving uh, talking to people this is one of the reasons the podcast has come about is because it gets me the opportunity to have a, a little geek out with fellow singing teachers and I, I'm the same as you I love that idea of community and I love what Bass brings to the, the individual teacher is that support and ability to nat out ideas and solve problems and share burdens and get some advice and inspiration Uh, but for me definitely constantly building on my my knowledge whether it's it's related directly or just something I'm interested in keeps me motivated and uh, my students certainly in the past when I was teaching one-to-ones much more regularly They would always be excited when I came back from some course or from the states or from a conference. Oh, that's the other thing I do is I go to conferences um, because they go, oh, what have you got for us now? You know, I love that. Yeah. So and when they get excited, I get excited, and and so that's how I've really maintained that. And I think it's really vital that uh, we're we're constantly building on our on our base, you know, foundation of knowledge. And I love it because. You know, I feel like I could be learning until the day I die or until I get Alzheimer's.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I'll constantly be entertained. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's curiosity.
0: Curiosity. Mm. Google was an absolute godsend for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm not great at reading. Like uh, I'm much better. I'm a more visual person. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having YouTube has been really cool as well. YouTube. Love it.
1: Yes. Yes. I can go down that track for a long time now. But, you know, one of the things that, I mean, you inspire me because of your curiosity, you know, it's like, well, what about this? And what about this? And how does this work? And your clarity as well about how we are in general as a human, how we're living in this world. Totally affects how we sing and what we do with it.
0: Mm. That's my next project is working on a, a program I've called the Performer's Edge, which is all about getting to the <clears throat> the bottom of what makes you know helps the performer succeed. Um, because I, you know, and I knew, I knew this even back in the day when I was much more technique focused. I would have students that came in. And you knew that it wasn't about the technique, yeah, but I didn't have any tools really, not the not significant amount of tools to deal with with that, other mm-hmm. than to maybe say you needed to you know sort this out, um it's interfering and sending them off. but I feel like there must be some strategies and knowledge that a a a singing teacher can have that can help them with some of the fundamentals of people who are lacking confidence or We have self-belief issues that are interfering with their ability to do something, which we know their instruments quite capable of doing.
1: Right. Right. No, I love that. I'm so glad you're looking at that. I'm looking forward to reaping the benefits of your looking into that. (laughs) Anyway,
0: um, I'm going to say thank you very much for being uh, my second guest on the best podcast.
1: It's been wonderful to be with you.
0: So other than through the Facebook group is there any other way that somebody might contact with you, get in contact with you, especially Anytime. if they're happening to get to Nashville?
1: Anytime, so Lisa at shamelesssinging.com. That's a lot of S's, there's three S's in the middle. That is correct, okay? So Lisa at shamelesssinging.com. Anytime,
0: so are you, have you got any events coming up in Nashville that you're thinking about doing?
1: We just have some small local things going on, Um, but if you're coming through town, find me because you never know what's going to be happening. A couple of my teachers I work with were getting ready to do some songwriter, not songwriting, but groups for songwriters and telling their stories and their songs.
0: And you and your husband know all the cool places to go for gigs as well
1: oh well not all of them but we know more and more this is mm-hmm. such a fun town in mm-hmm. fact you know i think you should move here but
0: me too <laughs> how's, <laughs> how's that basement coming along by the way
1: Ah, uh, done yeah. you're ready it's awesome. ready for you it's ready i'm on it all and right, for
0: thanks. you
1: all listening it's mm-hmm. ready you can come stay at our house
0: yes all right well thank you very much and looking forward to seeing you at some point somewhere in the bass community
1: we will. <laughs> <laughs>